Good morning. Our scripture is Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 through 34. Don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field as they grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you, Christy. This passage that Christy read for us is a part of a larger section of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. I wanted to find a picture of Sermon on the Mount. The first one that Google offered me was uh, White Nashville Jesus Sermon on the Mount with a very epically manicured beard. Uh, Maybe you've seen uh, The Chosen, which offers us hopefully a little bit more accurate representation of what Jesus was like. This sermon of Jesus was so compelling and is so famous that uh, a couple years ago in our church, we spent 23 Sundays teaching through it. Uh, One of the things that makes the Sermon on the Mount so compelling uh, is that its content is timeless and that it transcends cultures, it transcends history. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly if we were to go back to chapter 5 and maybe read the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor and so forth, uh, Jesus is speaking in response to the cultural Beatitudes of the day, what what might have been identified as the cultural blessing of the day. And I was thinking about what were the quote-unquote cultural Beatitudes of first century Greco-Roman life? What would have been esteemed? What would have been held up as, hey, this is the standard, this is the goal, this is the aim? And uh, here are, are kind of would be my summary of first century Greco-Roman life. Blessed are the rich, for they will be able to do whatever they want and have many fabulous things. Blessed are the talented, for they will capitalize on their abilities. 
Or how about this? Blessed are the beautiful, for they will be adored, beloved, and envied by others. Or blessed are the powerful, for they will control the trends, the markets, and people. And blessed are the strong, for they will not need anyone else. If I were to summarize kind of the core values of ancient Greco-Roman life, those would be the core values that I think we would see historically. And my, hello, two millennia later, not much has changed about human nature. Most of us live in a world and probably have the consciousness to say, yeah, those are the things, whether we articulate it that way or not, that subconsciously we think that's what it means to be blessed, Yet when Jesus addresses all of these things, when Jesus addresses the crowd today, he talks about lifestyles that are centered on money, lifestyles that are centered on accomplishment. He addresses people who are wrecked by constant anxiety. It's a perfect sermon for 2022 and will be for 2023 and so forth. I wonder how many of you, This is just a little personal reflection. It's rhetorical. If in your job, whether you're in sales or teaching or science or management, whatever you might be, when you have an an, an idea uh, that's really meaningful to you, that you're passionate about it, and you share it with your colleagues, you share it with people in your field, have you ever shared something that you thought, man, this is a winner, this is a great idea, and then have your colleagues, have your friends look at you like you're an idealistic little puppy who doesn't understand how the real world works. Well, when I shared with some of my kind of ministry leader friends, my ministry colleague friends, some mentors, that I was going to spend 12 weeks this fall giving a vision for spiritual formation to our church and a 12-week vision series that would take us all the way to November, my wise, experienced, concerned friends looked at me and would say things like, that seems like a lot for people's attention spans. Or people don't really care that much about vision, Brad. They care about what will help them. People will tune you out, Brad, if it's not practical. And here's the thing. That's all true. I've stood on stages like this for 20 years. And if the sermon topic is on overcoming uh, depression or anxiety in your life, people are taking notes and they're dialed in. Or if it's about managing and dealing with difficult relationships within your life or, or, or stewarding your money well or overcoming doubt in your faith, people are like, yes, help me with that. If I get up here and I talk about how the Passover symbolizes atonement and mercy, oh man, the yawns start to go and I'm like, all right, how do I help? Like, I get it. It seems like there's a binary choice between practical theology and like doctrinal spiritual formation theology. Practical theology being um, kind of of in a, a bit of a, this is a bit of a crass way to think about it, but bite-sized Christian self-help. Like here are, the, here are the three things that will help you have a better week and fill in whatever you need that week to be better versus uh, spiritual formation theology that's often about sacrifice and surrender and repentance and obedience, the words that everybody loves in a sermon. Now call me a bit idealistic, call me naive, but I actually don't think there's a binary choice. Matter of fact, I reject the notion of there being a binary choice. And I think Jesus, in his seminal sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, rejects that notion. Matter of fact, look at the seminal sentence here of Jesus' seminal sermon. Seek first the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and 
All of these things, all of these worries, anxieties, cares, things that you long for and you desire, they will be provided to you. I want you to note these two central declarations that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, the centrality of the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't blink. He doesn't uh, uh, mess around. He is clear, like, seek my kingdom first. We'll see it in several other places uh, uh, this morning, the centrality of the way of Jesus. But also, Jesus addresses the solution to our concerns. So, I want us to get this this morning. The message of Jesus was not that the things you and I worry about, the things that we are concerned about, the things that we care about, Jesus' message was not that they were unimportant. His message was that they are not most important. So pastorally, as a ministry leader, and you also yourselves as a minister, a member of the body, one who has spiritual influence, whether it be in your home or in your small group or with your friends at your place of work, how do I, how do we best help people with their financial concerns, which Jesus was addressing, their addictions, depression, decision-making, loneliness, doubt, parenting, marriage, friendship, anxiety, materialism, idolatry, and a hundred other very practical, very real concerns. How do we best help them with those concerns? I believe that we patiently, we patiently, passionately, Faithfully, persistently, and repeatedly exalt and excuse me, exhort. We should exalt Jesus and exalt each other, but we should exhort one another to orient our lives, to organize our lives, to center our lives around the kingdom of God, or as it was known to the very first Christians, the way of Jesus, or simply the way for short. And so if you leave here today with just one single nugget of truth, I want it to be this. This, this might even seem like a theological shift for some of us, depending on your theological background, the kind of church you were formed by. But I want you to get this this morning, that following the way of Jesus is not merely about piety. That following Jesus is not just about reverence and faithfulness. That following Jesus is not just about religious devotion. It's not just about doctrine. It's not just about clean living. Now, are those things of supreme value and importance? You bet they are. But hear me this morning. Following the way of Jesus is also for your good. It is for my good. It's for our flourishing. flourishing. Following the way of Jesus is actually for your ultimate happiness. Now, maybe you've heard this little pithy statement that's been said by lots of preachers and authors throughout time, that God isn't interested in your happiness, that he's interested in your holiness. And while this is a very pithy and um, cute, devout-sounding statement, I want to tell you this morning that this actually isn't true. Go back to Genesis, Genesis 1. Genesis, more than any other book of the Bible, shows us the meaning of things. What do we see in Genesis? What is the very first thing God does with his creation? The very first thing God does with his creation is he gives it away. He gives it to Adam and Eve. Matter of fact, he gives Adam and Eve each other to help them with offset their loneliness. He gives them blessing. Matter of fact, he gives them purpose. He puts them in a garden. He says, this garden is for you. Cultivate it, keep it, protect it, guard it, uh, help it grow up. It was an extraordinary purpose that he gave them. 
And then he says to them, hey, go, be fruitful and multiply. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to shout this from the rooftops today. That was not a burdensome command. Those were commands to love and delight and to live. God was not some curmudgeon on his back porch waiting to throw lightning bolts. The first thing he wants to do with this majestic creation is to bless his creation with it. Matter of fact, if you just go to Genesis 1 and read how many times the word give, gave, blessed is used, it is obvious that God cares about the good of his creation. Now, if you worry in any way that this diminishes God's holiness, his righteousness, his majesty, his sovereignty, it doesn't. But when we ignore or diminish the idea that God is not deeply passionate about his creation, that he doesn't want his creation to delight, we actually do cast dispersion on his holiness. Because God is not merely holy in his moral perfection. God is holy, H-O-L-Y, because he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely good. You see, God's wrath, God's just anger towards sin is actually one of his purest expressions of love. Think about this. God loves you so much. God is for you and me so much. God cares so much about our good that he hates, he despises, and he actually judges the things that are harmful to us. I want you to think about a parent who is parenting in the most benevolent, good, and wholesome way. A good parent doesn't see things that are harmful to their children as benign, sort of insignificant, hey, I don't want to judge that. No, a good parent hates the things that will harm their children. Our God is so good that even his wrath is ultimately an expression of his goodness towards you and towards me. And so this morning, here's what I'm getting after this morning. Here's, what I'm, here's the tree I'm trying to climb up, is I want you to desperately, I desperately want you to know the full Jesus the real Jesus, the Jesus who is holy and perfect in every imaginable way. Because that Jesus wants you to be holy. For his glory, yes and amen. But I want us to also understand that God's glory is so important and to understand that it is connected so deeply that God is supremely glorified in the glad harmony between he and his creation. That his supreme act of glory was offering himself so that he could reconcile the brokenness between mankind and God. That his supreme invitation is for you and I to join as co-heirs with Jesus, his divine family, now, what could be better than that? What could be more centered on our happiness than the fact that God would say, I am going to make my glory about rescuing you, redeeming you, restoring you, and calling you sons and daughters and sitting you at the table with my son, Jesus. That can't be any more for us, right? So therefore, seek first the kingdom of God. Follow the way of Jesus. Because when we center our lives on Jesus, when we center our lives on following his way, the rest of life begins to make sense. 
Life begins to work the way it was intended to work. We even see it in the Lord's Prayer. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. For those of you who grew up with the King James, hallowed be thy name. Yes and amen to the splendor and perfection of who God is. Matter of fact, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First and foremost, Lord, you reign. And not just reign in position, but Lord, would you reign in power? Would you reign in authority? And would your ways become our ways? Your will become our will. And then give us today our daily bread. Your kingdom, your will, then our daily bread. Do you see the order there? It's creator then creation. This is divine order, but this is also logical order. So what, what is Jesus really getting at in the Beatitudes? What is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount? What is the meaning of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? It's that the way of Jesus is a lifestyle, not a hobby. That Jesus cannot be, and his ways cannot be a side dish to the rest of our meal of life, that Jesus was never intended to be part of some sort of cultural faith that is simply a source of comfort for us in hard times. But Jesus in his way is to be the very essence of our existence, the centerpiece of our life. And that's a really big claim, right? That's a really big claim for those of us, and it's all of us who live in an age, in a world that makes as its chief God self-actualization and self-fulfillment, and whose chief doctrine is this, you be you, and, and you get yours, and you follow your heart. But you know what happens when all of us get baptized into the kind of Western, modern, Americanized religion of individualism? Eventually, we all come in conflict with each other. Because eventually, your desires, your needs, your wants will get in the way of mine. It always leads to despair and frustration. But this is, this is the doctrine. And if you've got kids who watch Disney Channel, like my do, like this is, this is like morning lesson number one. You're awesome. You do whatever you want to do. You be you. But the message of Jesus is not that. The message of Jesus is what? It's become like me. The message of Jesus is follow my ways. Not you do you, but you follow my ways. The message of Jesus is not, hey, whatever you can do to make yourself happy. The message of Jesus is seek my kingdom first. Now, the message of our culture is this. Do whatever makes you happy. Now, I want you to hear me this morning. That's not inherently a bad or evil message. The problem is with the next logical step. What makes you happy? And if you haven't figured it out already, our culture has no idea. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, our culture treats the pursuit of happiness like a slot machine at Vegas. Like, try some things, you know. Feel some things. Maybe this will work. Maybe this relationship will work. Maybe this hobby will work. Maybe this job will work. Maybe this state will work. Maybe this. And you just and you go through life, and you spend your entire life pulling the slot machine, hoping that you'll get three winners, and you'll finally be happy. But what happens every time? Despair and disappointment. 
Matter of fact, popular culture even gives us parable after parable showing this to be true. I want us to consider this morning, just briefly, two of the most popular TV shows, TV programs, uh, not just of all time, but certainly of our time, uh, Yellowstone and The Game of Thrones. Now, I don't watch either of them, and I am not here to offer judgment if you do. As much as I love Westerns, I, I just couldn't do Yellowstone. Uh, the, the, it, there was just too much gratuitous content that wasn't good for my heart, wasn't good for my mind. But the biggest reason I couldn't get on board with the TV show, and if you hate it, I'm not trying to say that you've got bad taste. The biggest reason I couldn't get on board with it was because of its total and complete hopelessness. Now, if you're not familiar with either of those TV shows, let me just give you a quick plot understanding because uh, they are actually symbolic of most of the entertainment that we enjoy. You see, the cult following, the fan favorites of these TV shows, they know this, that in these shows, people fight, scrap, and claw for happiness. I mean, at at, at the very baseline, these are TV shows that are all about the human pursuit of happiness and people will do whatever they can to achieve it. They try to achieve happiness with power, with money, with things, with sex, with relationships. And yet everyone, every character is a disastrous mess. And this is a spoiler alert. It is despair and depression and heartache on repeat. And one of the reasons I think we're drawn to that, one of the reasons I'm drawn to that is we resonate with it. It's relatable, right? Because when you seek after happiness and you try to do everything, and sometimes we're a little bit more sophisticated about some of our carnal ways to try to achieve happiness, and we, and we experience the despair, we experience the disappointment, the betrayal, the, the longings, we see that and we're like, that's what my life feels like. Of course those shows are popular. They are rotting to the heartstrings of our very existence. But there's no beauty There's no virtue, there's little to no redemption because if you seek first the kingdom of self, you'll never get what your soul longs for. Why? Because you and I are creation. We were not created for self-fulfillment. We were not created for self-actualization. Your soul was meant to be fulfilled by your creator. We have longings that no person, no spouse, no child, no job, no thing, no amount of money can feel. In the words of Jim Carrey, I wish everyone could become rich so that they could know that money won't make you happy. Anthony Hopkins, what advice uh, in Vanity Fair, what advice would you give to all young actors when you get to the top? It's all a lie. What do you mean? You thought that as soon as you achieved whatever it was you're achieving, you would feel the happiness in your soul, but it's not true. Like we have the testimony of all of history to show us that the end of seeking for ourselves is not happiness, but it's actually sadness and despair and depression. Matter of fact, the only way to get what your soul truly longs for is to seek first the kingdom of God. And then... All of the other things, the things your soul longs for, the things that you feel like that you need, these things reframed, reimagined, reshaped by your creator will be 
provided for you. You see, following the ways of Jesus, seeking the kingdom first, is not merely about attaining salvation so that someday we can go to heaven. Following the way of Jesus is about the path of life today. This afternoon, tomorrow, it's about today. So with all of that as introduction, (laughs) don't panic. What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? What does that mean? Okay, Brad, I hear you using that phrase, but what does that mean? And then how? How do we do it? And we're going to spend several weeks answering these two questions. Today, though, I want us to conclude with this question. Are you living or simply existing? We're really trying to get at what Jesus was getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount. In your life, are you truly living or are you simply existing? Let me ask it a couple of different ways. What are you seeking in life? What's driving you? What is getting you out of bed in the morning? Are you just trying to get through the day? Now let me pause here pastorally and stop and say something that's really important. There are and will be seasons in our life that are so disruptive where things beyond our control, circumstances beyond our ability to manage come into our life and they knock us down. They disrupt us. They take our breath away. And hear me, the Lord remembers that we're but dust. And he's gracious and he's patient to help us, to renew us in those seasons. On those days, in those seasons, just getting through, that's enough. And the Lord will get you through it. But that's not meant to be our pattern. That's not meant to be our story. That's not meant to be the total of who we are. So are you trying to satisfy your soul with what the world has to offer? Be honest with yourself. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the key of gospel culture was honesty and humility. Be honest with yourself. Are you trying to satisfy your soul with money or with status or with power or with accomplishment, with getting promotions? Or are you even hoping that your soul will be satisfied with good things, a spouse, your kids, sports, your favorite recreation, maybe even ministry? Is Jesus a hobby or a lifestyle, the way of Jesus? Is Jesus simply a lifeguard for when we get in trouble? Or is Jesus our Lord? Is he our master teacher? To live is Christ, Paul says. What was he saying? He was saying, my very being, my very reason to get up And to inhale and exhale is Jesus. Which is why he could be honest about the challenges of his life and lay down the anxieties knowing that, hey, life is about Christ. So he would say, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever your activity is this week, do it all for the glory of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and then... All of these things will be provided for you. So this morning, I want the message 
to be very clear. Jesus is holy. He is majestic. He is worthy of all of our worship. He is righteous and perfect in every way. In so many ways, Jesus is different than us. He offered himself when, let's be honest, all of us in the room would have run away and said, no way. I've seen the kind of people they're going to be. I've seen that Brad Raby. He is not going to be faithful. He is going to break his promise 100 times. No way. But Jesus, he was the opposite of us. He offered himself. He lowered himself. He took on the form of humanity. He made himself a servant, and he gave us this life. And so Jesus is, in some ways, wholly different than us. And yet, he chose to become like us, too to experience betrayal, to experience hunger, to experience hard days, to experience loneliness, so that he could not only die to save our souls, but he would live in such a way that he would show us how to live. So following the way of Jesus is, yes, about seeking his kingdom first for his glory, But I want to deeply persuade you this morning that following Jesus is actually also about your good. And this journey that we're on, Fellowship 2.0, orienting our life around the ways of Jesus, is, yes, about faithfulness and devotion to the one who is worthy and only worthy of faithfulness and devotion. But it's also about your good. It's about your family's good. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. And some of you have lived life to experience the rain following, the rivers rising, and the wind beating your house. But the house built on that rock, it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. The foundation was on Jesus. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them who doesn't seek first the kingdom of God, who doesn't make and center their life on following the ways of Jesus, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Friends, let's follow the ways of Jesus, not because I said so or did my best to make a compelling presentation to invite you to. Let's follow Jesus because there is no one like him. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you today both overwhelmed and underwhelmed. Underwhelmed when we're honest about 
who we are. We, we miss the mark. We, we struggle. We fail. We, we fall short. But so overwhelmed with joy and gladness that in those shortcomings you meet us. That you meet us and you are the Savior who is here to rescue us from our sin. That on the cross you absorbed the just wrath of God for the sins that was harming your creation. You took all of that so that you could give us life. That's the gospel and we give you praise for it. But you also lived in such a way to show us a new way to experience life. And so, Father, today, Spirit of God, do what I cannot do. Do what no author cannot do, no gifted teacher can do. Spirit of God, transform our hearts and minds. Help us to see. Remove back uh, the blinders. Give us clear eyes to see that your way is the way to life. That there's lots of things that this world has promised to give us and they will fail us every time, but you will not. You will be there in our hardest moments. You will be there on the mountains of our jubilation and help us to center our lives, to orient our existence around being with you and becoming like you and doing the things that you did. Thank you, Lord, for giving us life through your death, but also thank you for showing us how to live with your life. Make us, Father, people of Jesus who shine as lights in a dark world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Once again, thanks so much for hanging out, church. Good to see you. Let's fellowship a little bit, and then let's practice the ways of Jesus together for God's glory and the good of our neighbor. Grace and peace.